St. Benedict, as you surely know, lived uh, at the end of the 5th century, beginning of the 6th century. His traditional dates are 480 to 547. Uh, those of you who were on the pilgrimage this year, we visited Monte Cassino, where he died in 547, traditionally. And uh, then there's a dispute about what happened to his relics. Monte Cassino seems to have some of them, and the rest are at Fleury in France, though both communities, I think, will say they have all the relics. Uh, but in any case, uh, St. Benedict lived in the environment of Rome. Uh, but it's important to understand that monasticism goes back much further than that. Uh, and in fact, the earliest monks took as their examples Old Testament figures like Elijah, uh, New Testament figures like John the Baptist. Usually, monasticism is said to begin in Christian circles with the figure of St. Anthony the Great, uh, who lived in Egypt in the 3rd century and into the 4th century. Um, he's a well-known historical figure. He's not legendary by any stretch of the imagination. We have five of his letters, uh, which I personally think are authentic. We also have the life of Antony written by St. Athanasius, uh, who's a well-known church father, one of the, the great champions of orthodoxy in the fourth century, and uh, who, by his own account, was given the mantle of Antony when Antony died. Uh, so Antony the Great begins this movement out into the desert in the late third century. It picks up steam when the Roman Empire uh, makes Christianity legal in the early 4th century. Constantine removes the persecutions of the Christians. And uh, this partly has the effect that now that the emperor is Christian and one can't be persecuted for being Christian, lots of people start entering the church. And according to John Cashin, a lot of monks then uh, see this as a kind of weakening of the church. Whereas before, being a Christian required a certain uh, courage, a real bravery, uh, to stand up to the empire, <laughs> you know, the, the, the greatest political empire that the world had ever known at that point, uh, and, and basically defy certain of the emperor's rulings, suddenly it became a comfortable thing to become a Christian. And there were uh, political perks to being a Christian. And uh, partly, but not entirely, the monastic movement grows out of a desire to keep the purity of the Christian faith so that we, we seek God for God's sake alone, out, out of sheer love for God because of the love that God has shown us in giving us his son, giving his son for us. So uh, Antony renounces his, uh, he was from a fairly wealthy family, not, not the wealthiest sort, but uh, land-owning family in Egypt. He gives up his land. Uh, he goes to the, live at the edge of the city so he can pay attention to his thoughts. Okay? Uh, and the further and further he goes into the monastic discipline, the further away from society he moves. So by the end of his life, he's living as a hermit, uh, a, a secret mountain someplace in the Egyptian desert. And he has a disciple that vets all of his visitors for him. <laughs> And only those who are really serious about the spiritual life will he see at this point in his life. Um, but St. Athanasius tells us, through his purification of his thoughts, uh, Antony became a doctor for all of Egypt. 
So he uh, was able to read persons' hearts. He was able to heal persons of psychological and physical ailments. Uh, he was able to judge between disputants in, in legal matters. He was able to advise the emperor, uh, all kinds of things, from his hermitage, you know. Um, his example and the, as I say, the, the changes, the political changes in Christianity in the fourth century meant that lots and lots of men and women went out to the desert to live this new monastic life. So St. Benedict is, is a couple hundred years after this. And what we find is that this anchoritic life of withdrawal from society um, takes a certain unusual kind of person to live well. There are many pitfalls to living by oneself. And if you know St. Benedict's first chapter on the types of monks, you'll remember that he says, uh, the anchorites are the strongest kind, those who live by themselves and fight hand to hand the combat, spiritual combat of the desert. Uh, this doesn't happen right away. Uh, men who enter the monastery shouldn't imagine that they're ready for the anchoritic life immediately. Rather, they need testing in the monastery with lots of brothers to help them. Okay? And they need to be tested by a rule and by an abbot, by obedience and so on. Then, after uh, they make some advancements in the spiritual life, they may very well go on to live in the desert. Of course, in Benedict's case, this would be out of the forest. Uh, and it's interesting that Benedict would say this in one sense because according to St. Gregory the Great who wrote Benedict's life, Benedict actually started as a hermit. We also know that uh, when he first lived community life, uh, some, um, the monastery of Vico Varo, which we drove past on our uh, pilgrimage, uh, the monastery there, they invited him to be abbot for the community because of his reputation for holiness. And he said, uh, you, you don't want me as your abbot because I'm going to be too tough on you. He said, no, 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 please be our abbot. And after a few months, it uh, turned out that Benedict was right and they tried to poison him. <laughs> and so he fled. Uh, in my own interpretation of this, I would say that uh, it, it took Benedict some time to learn how to be a superior. You know, he, he probably, we, we see in his rule that the abbot needs to temper his teaching to different types of persons. Not everybody's at the same level, okay? So uh, perhaps the young Benedict uh, really was too, too harsh to his brothers, you know? He, he wasn't able yet to sort of discern the proper measure of discipline for each monk. Later on, he founds a whole bunch of monasteries, and as I mentioned, uh, Subiaco and Monte Cassino have more or less perdured to this day. Monte Cassino has been destroyed a bunch of times, uh, but but not by the monks. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't that the monastery fell apart. Uh, there were external forces that, that uh, destroyed Monte Cassino. Most recently, sad to say, the American uh, Air Force <laughs> destroyed Monte Cassino, and then rebuilt it. The uh, current monastery was built largely from funds from uh, the United States. So. Um, so Benedict, when he writes his rule, he has the benefit of some 200 plus years of experience of monastic life. There's a lot of monastic literature and a lot of patristic literature that undergirds the rule. And it can be very helpful for us to know some of those references. 
In particular, what starts to happen in the late fourth century uh, is that monks start to write rules for their communities. They start to realize that if people are going to live together, expectations have to be clear to some extent, right? So, uh, in the, the earliest rules are by Pacomius and Basil the Great in the late fourth century. In the early fifth century, St. Augustine writes a very influential rule. Augustine and Basil are considered to be two of the major influences on, on Benedict. Uh, but the, ma the main influence on Benedict is a very odd one. Uh, but let me tell you a story about that uh, before uh, I tell you uh, what the relationship is. In the, uh, there, are, there are a couple of times where monks have been called upon to gather up all of the written resources of the Catholic Church. The first big movement in this way was under Charlemagne, the emperor, and uh, who he was crowned emperor in the year 800, um, somewhat to his surprise, I think. Uh, uh, and this caused a little bit of friction with the emperor in Byzantium, by the way. But in any case, uh, Charlemagne took his duties to the church very seriously. And so he wanted to standardize the liturgy throughout his empire, and he wanted to standardize monastic observance because he recognized that the monasteries were the places where people were going to be educated, and he needed an educated class uh, to, to run his, his empire. You know, he needed guys who could write, read and write, who knew the law, who knew the liturgy, knew the church law, and so on. So uh, he asked a group of monks, uh, the most famous of them being St. Benedict of Anian, to gather up all of the rules that were known, all the monastic rules. And then uh, they consulted all these rules and they decided the rule of St. Benedict was the best. And after that, uh, the Benedictine rule became the standard in the West, or wherever Charlemagne's empire was. Uh, this took some time. It didn't, you know, in those days, uh, the empire, emperor couldn't uh, issue a decree and post it on the internet and everybody could have it the next day. You know, it could take months before uh, a decree would reach England for instance. And then there wasn't always a way to enforce, you know, you can imagine if there's a monastery in southern Italy where they've been following the rule of St. Basil for 300 years. And a decree comes from, you know, Aix-la-Chapelle in, in uh, northern France and says you have to use the rule of St. Benedict. And they say, no, you know, who's going to enforce it? You know, so it didn't happen right away, but eventually, by the 11th, 12th century, most monasteries in Europe were following the rule of St. Benedict. Uh, but this came out of a, an actual desire to study the history of monasticism and look at a, a whole series of, I mean, this book that Benedict of Anion published is huge. It's just all monastic rules in Latin. You, you, can, you can access it online. It's part of the Patrologia Latina if you read Latin. Uh, but it's, it's an immense work. And it's very interesting, and more and more translations of the different rules have been coming out in recent years. Uh, then, in the, in the 19th century, this is part of a project that really starts with the Counter-Reformation. So, the, the, with the Reformation, there were charges made against the Catholic Church that we had departed from patristic teaching. So, a lot of monasteries joined in the work of gathering up 
all of the writings, the known writings of the church fathers again, to prove to the Protestant reformers that actually our practices were ancient. Uh, the, the, the way the Mass is celebrated is actually the same way it was celebrated in the fourth century. Okay. Um, and eventually, this, the same thing happens with monastic rules. Again, all the monastic rules that we know about are gathered up. And uh, what, uh, what had been forgotten, what, what Benedict of Anian certainly knew, but what had been forgotten is that there's this one rule that we uh, know about from about the same time as St. Benedict, and it's called the Rule of the Master. And it's written by a fellow who doesn't name himself. He just calls himself the master. Uh, that doesn't sound as good to English ears as it could. Magister in uh, Latin can be translated either as master or as teacher. Okay? So when we say master, we mean like a, a master of arts. right? So someone who is learned in the monastic life. And it's written in a kind of dialogue form. There are questions like, what should we do? Uh, how, how much should we eat? And then the master replies, well, different persons have different needs for sustenance, and so uh, we believe that uh, for the day, brothers should have a pound of, of bread. What scholars began to realize is that this rule of the master sounds a lot like St. Benedict's rule. Okay? And, uh, and, and some of you have been through this, but it's still it's a great story and worth, worth telling. So their first reaction is, well, and the other thing is the rule of the master is about four times as long as St. Benedict's rule. And the master goes on and on and on sometimes. I mean, he's very amusing, but he can be kind of annoying, too, to be honest with you. St. Benedict's chapter on the types of monks, uh, it's very concise. He has four types of monks. There are the two good kinds, the communal monks, the Cenobites, the hermits, or the anchorites. And then there are the perversions of these, the... the uh, Cerebeites who live in communities but don't have a rule and don't have an abbot, and then the gyrovags who live on their own and go from one monastery to another, you know, uh, mooching off of other monks. And um, in the rule of the master, his description of the gyrovags goes on for like three pages, and it's it's very funny, but it's not very charitable. <laughs> you know, it's making fun of these guys who tramp from province to province and. Um, you know, expect that when they arrive at the monastery, they'll put a chicken in the pot and, and boil it for them. And uh, um, St. Benedict, if you remember, ends his chapter by saying, of these sorts of monks, it's better to remain silent than to talk. <laughs> in any case, what, what scholars thought was, uh, obviously the master has taken the rule of St. Benedict and he's embroidered it with all this sort of useless extra information. And uh, so it was kind of a historical oddity, but wasn't paid a lot of attention to. Um, but in the 19th and 20th century, we've made great advancements in textual studies, like uh, because of printing and because of uh, libraries and reproduction is a lot easier than it used to be. Uh, scholars, first of the Bible, but then of the fathers of the church, realize that uh, if you look closely at texts and compare them with one another, like different versions of the same text, or say if you take St. Augustine's writings and put them next to the writings of Optatus of Carthage, you realize that Augustine actually read Optatus and he, he borrowed some of his phrases when he was talking about the Donatists, for example. Uh, textual critics start looking at the rule of St. Benedict 
And there's a, a Benedictine monk by the name of Ginistru, who, from close study of the master, and using the techniques of textual criticism, said, wait a minute, I think the master was written first. And St. Benedict actually borrowed from the master. Well, this didn't go over very well at first, because it seems to compromise the originality and genius of Benedict, right? So for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, we've looked at St. Benedict and said, here is a spiritual master who, uh, just from sheer prayer and experience of the monastic life, was kind of inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down his rule. And then this master comes along and kind of ruins it all, right? So to think that St. Benedict, who, whose spiritual doctrine is proven, was borrowing from this sort of blowhard guy, this was not something that uh, a lot of monks were interested in pursuing. Um, and then just the very idea that uh, St. Benedict was not as original as we thought seemed threatening to a lot of the, the traditions of Benedictine life. However, uh, one of the good things, again, about scholarship, uh, if it's practiced well, is you, the goal is to get at the truth. And the more scholars looked at these two rules and compared them, the more it seemed very clear that St. Benedict borrowed large portions of his rule from the master. Here's the exciting thing about that. If you do read the master and you compare them, you know, you get an insight into St. Benedict. For one thing, he's intensely interested in the tradition. He wasn't going to write something just out of his own experience. He wanted to write something with some basis in the tradition that already existed in his time. So he actually borrowed a rule that was already written. And, and the master is probably written just in the generation before Benedict. They're very, very close in time. We also know that the rule of the master was written in, in central or southern Italy. Okay, we can tell by the dialect. We can tell by comparing where the manuscripts come from and the, uh, the history of the manuscripts. So definitely Benedict is walking in that same area, okay? Some people even think he may have lived in a monastery where they used the rule of the master, and he realized that it was not adequate. So he, he decided to change it at a certain point. And what I find especially beautiful about it, so for example, the, the prologue, which we'll, we'll, end a, we'll talk about in a few moments, the prologue to the master's rule is a very, very long, erudite homily on baptism. In some ways, the master's prologue is clearer as a result because he draws out four themes uh, that would, be, would have been preached to catechumens at the Easter Vigil when they were baptized. Uh, he teaches on the Our Father. If you know the ancient history of baptism, uh, the catechumens did not learn the Our Father until after they were baptized. And that was one of the first things they were taught. Now that you're actually a, a daughter or son of God, you learn to call God Father. And this is why we, we don't pray the Our Father until the liturgy of the Eucharist after the catechumens are kicked out because they, that's, this is secret. They don't know this prayer yet. Okay? Um, so the, the Master has a long teaching on the Our Father. He has a teaching on um, psalms that are traditional in understanding baptism. So he clearly understands that monastic life is a deepening of baptism, or a kind of second baptism. Benedict, in his prologue, uh, cuts out three-quarters of it. As a result, the, the careful planning of the master gets a bit jumbled and confused. So in some ways, 
Benedict's prologue literarily is, is less accomplished. However, when you look at the things that Benedict has added, uh, there's some of the most beautiful lines. <laughs> you know, he clearly understood that, that uh, um, brevity, but also certain key concepts, key concepts of love, key concepts of perseverance. So the very famous phrase at the end of the rule that uh, by persevering in the monastery, we will participate by patience in the passion of Christ uh, and so merit to, to share in his glory. Benedict added that. That's not in the master. Okay. So I, I, you know, in my opinion, the best line in the whole prologue is, is Benedict's composition. The other thing we see is that Benedict follows the master pretty closely through the first half of his rule. But he changes things around. So after the spiritual doctrinal sections, chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, uh, the, the tools of the spiritual craft, obedience, silence, and humility, uh, the, the master goes from there to describe the, the uh, governance of the community, the deans, uh, the cellarer, the, the offices within the monastery that, that help the abbot. What does Benedict put in chapter 8? Do you, do you remember? Can anyone tell me how he changes the plan of the rule at that point? Benedict uh, gives us the liturgy next. He, he, he takes the, the master talks about the liturgy at the very end of his rule. Benedict thinks it's more important, so he takes the liturgical section and moves it uh, right after the doctrinal section of the rule. And so we get the abbot's teaching, and it, it lies immediately right into the, the liturgy. Uh, I often like to think of the, the ladder of humility uh, like this. Uh, the ladder of, of humility is a little bit like climbing Mount Sinai. Uh, and when, uh, the, when Moses climbs Mount Sinai, uh, for us Christians sometimes it can be a disappointment because at the top when he meets God, God gives him a bunch of rules. <laughs> Right. Um, now, if we read that in a spiritual way, it's, it's very, very beautiful. God, God is communicating to his people how they should live. We climb the ladder of humility in our, in our Christian spiritual understanding of these realities. We get to the top of the ladder of humility and we enter into the eternal praise of God in the liturgy. Right. Uh, it's important to keep that in mind because when we actually get to chapter 8 and it says, how many psalms should there be at vigils? Uh, if, we, if we don't have that larger understanding of what Benedict is doing, we can think, uh, I'm not going to be going to vigils anyway. Who cares? <laughs> you know? uh, do as many as you want. Uh, but, uh, um, but Benedict, I, I think, is really showing us the central importance of the liturgy in the life of the monk, that this is really uh, why we do the practices we do so that we dispose ourselves so that at the liturgy, we understand what we're doing. We understand that we're entering into the eternal life. We are entering into communion with the saints, with the angels, and the praise of God. Um, then the last thing I want to say about the comparison between the Master and St. Benedict, which uh, is important. Beginning with about chapter 40 or so, we get more and more of Benedict's own voice, more and more chapters that don't appear in the Master. Uh, I didn't look this up before I came. About the last 20 chapters are all Benedict. Uh, and 
again, I would say these are, are some of the most important chapters in the rule. They're very subtle chapters. One of my favorites is uh, the chapter on impossible tasks. Uh, what does a brother do when he's assigned an impossible job? Um, there, there is no such thing in the master. St. Benedict, obviously, from experience, knew that sometimes brothers were going to be asked to do things that were beyond their capabilities. And uh, his teaching is just, it's so beautiful. The brother has to try first. And when he finds that it really it exceeds his abilities, then at the right time, with the right disposition and words, he is humbly to exp- give reasons to the abbot why he's not able to complete the task. Uh, these are so, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll share with you as much as I can about the importance of all these words. You know, the right time. It's, you know how it is. You, it's frustrating when you can't do something. Somebody asks you to do something and you fail at it. We, we all feel crummy when, when that happens. Uh, we might get angry and say, why did he give me this job? I can't do it. I'm going to go right into his office and tell him. St. <laughs> Benedict says, no, no, you really have to wait for the right time. You have to learn uh, that not every moment is the right time to say difficult things. You have to find the right time. Um, and then you have to give reasons. This is really important. Benedict wants his monks to be reasonable men. Uh, uh, we, we're not fideists. You know? We don't just sort of uh, expect that God will magically provide for us. We need to use our minds. This is part of our spiritual life. Um, you know, stones and, and uh, stars and, and galaxies don't have minds. Human beings have minds. That's because we're the, the, the priests of creation. We're the link between the material world and the spiritual world. And we partake of the, the mind of God. We partake of the intelligence of the angels. Uh, but it's our job then to bring the material world to God. And to, to do that, we have to think. <laughs> we have to use our brains. So we have to do this in our relations with one another. Uh, Being a reasonable person means I can explain to you why I've done the things I've done. I can give you reasons for my actions. Somebody who who is crazy, we say is insane, we don't understand what they're doing. They do things that don't make sense. We can't give an account of why they're doing the thing they're doing. This is an important thing because this means that reason... Rationality is something we do together. It's something we learn to do together. Uh, if, if you're my friend, if, if I'm not making sense, you press me for reasons. You know, it's like with my sister who's thinking of moving to Vancouver. You know, the family is very interested that she and her husband be able to give good reasons why they should do this because we care about them. And we know that if you have good reasons for something, it's more likely to work out. Uh, and we, we want to be able to understand one another, right? So, anyway, this is my, my short teaching on this chapter on impossible tasks. And you know what happens if... The, so the brother can give all the reasons he wants to the abbot for why he can't finish the job. But the, it's still the abbot's decision to say you have to do it anyway. <laughs> okay, it's, it's possible. That, that, and then the brother has to say, okay, trusting in God's goodness, that this will be good for me, I have to keep doing it. And this is very much grounded in monastic literature. If you're familiar with the writings of the Desert Fathers, there's a, a topos that comes up, a, a story that comes up over and over again. 
where the, the teacher, the Abba, who has a spiritual son, will tell him to do something like, uh, take that dead stick over there, put it in the ground, I want you to water it every day. And of course, watering something in the desert is really hard because you have to trek to the water source maybe several miles each direction and carry the water back and then pour it on a dead stick. <laughs> you know. um, <clears throat> some of these stories end with uh, the stick blooming you know, uh, miraculously and the Abba saying, ah, oh, there's the fruit of obedience. You know, he, he did the impossible task and God proved him. In other cases, then you know, there's one other story uh, that after two years, the Abba comes out to look at the stick. It's still a stick. It's still dead. Pulls it out of the ground and says, okay, you're done. <laughs> so the, you know, the question is, will I dispose myself to be obedient to another human being and trust him that he will? Because we, you know, we don't know the, the heart of this brother who had to do this. It may have been that he was struggling with pride in some way and, and the abbot knew that this is what he needed. Anyway, all this is to say that when St. Benedict starts writing at the end of the rule, his own, in his own words, uh, and we really see uh, what Benedict is like uh, compared to the master, it's very illuminating what things matter to St. Benedict, what, what he's learned from experience, the things he has to correct. Uh, Michael Casey, the, the, the great Cistercian author, he thinks that, that the rule of St. Benedict went through several editions and that St. Benedict continued to add on as he got older. And this makes a lot of sense, you know. Um, and uh, so, for instance, I mentioned earlier, there are two chapters on the abbot. There's chapter 2 and there's chapter 64. Chapter 2 is what kind of person the abbot should be, and that's borrowed from the master largely. Chapter 64 is, a, is completely new material, how to elect an abbot, and what the community should be looking for in a candidate, and, and then how they should deliberate together to choose an abbot. Okay, so St. Benedict, uh, this is a, a huge innovation because for the master, uh, there's no election of a new abbot. When the master is dying, he calls one of his disciples over and whispers the name of the next abbot into his ear. And then hopefully he, he actually goes on and dies because otherwise, uh, if, if, he, if he somehow pulls out of his final illness, um, there will be uh, problems. Uh, Pacomius, if you're familiar with uh, the Pacomian communities of uh, Upper Egypt, this, this is what happened, actually. Pacomius had originally um, nominated one of his disciples to be his successor, but then he, he ended up living quite a bit longer than he had anticipated, and it caused a lot of friction in the monastery, and the disciple ended up having to leave uh, for a time. And somebody else actually ended up being uh, Pacomius' successor. So St. Benedict is aware of these all of this in the background, and he uh, is, I think, the first to institute an election of and, and he wants all the brothers to participate in it. So this is very interesting to see that uh, Benedict departs from his sources. Uh, he And he knew the sources. That's another thing that's helpful to know about the master. Benedict knew the master's rule. And there were certain things he said, this doesn't work. <laughs> so we're not going to do it. Um, my, my other favorite example is, um, here's, here's, here's an example of how studying the master can make the rule more exciting. If you've read the chapter, I forget the, the number on it, but the chapter on community rank, right? Boring. Okay, so Benedict says several times, the rank of the community is the abbot, and then the rest of the monks in order of their entry into the community. And he, he gives all these examples. You know, if, uh, if a slave enters 
and then a free man enters one hour later, the slave is senior to the free man. Okay. Um, the, the abbot can change the rank for good reasons. Again, this, this idea of ratio comes up all over the place in Benedict's rule. If the abbot has good reasons, he can promote a brother or even demote a brother, right? Okay, yeah, great. That seems very stuffy, you know? It seems like, well, um, and in, in practice this means like in the choir, when I was at St. John's, a big, big community of 200 monks, the guys in the back row have been sitting next to each other in choir for 50 years, you know? <laughs> Just sort of moving from the front row to the back as the guys behind them died and the guys in front of them entered. Um, this can appear to us to be unnecessarily uh, formalistic in some way. What's the master's organization? The master says that the abbot should change the rank of the brothers randomly so that nobody gets proud and that they all are sort of wondering if they're doing well by the abbot and they're all competing with one another. This is a disaster. <laughs> this is a total disaster. And, and I, I have often said I don't think the master's community could have survived more than one generation. So Benedict knows this. He sees that's how the master thought the community should be ordered. He said this, this doesn't work. And then what you, when you start thinking about well, what does Benedict see in this, how does he adjust this, uh, one of the things I like to tell the brothers in community here, um, each of you has an irreplaceable part in the, in the monastery. Part of the difficulty we have in modern life where we have uh, very, uh, a lot of social mobility, you, you can move to Vancouver, you can change jobs. You, the problem with this is that everybody's replaceable. You always know that, that, that if, if the boss wants to fire you and, and hire somebody else, he can do that. You know, there, there's lots of labor out there. In theory, it's not always the case, but in a lot of jobs that's the case. And so, um, but in, in Benedict's monastery, you occupy the place, you know, Brother Timothy is between Brother Ezekiel and Brother Joseph. And, and he will be there, unless he's elected a habit, the rest of their lives, you know. And, and so that's, that's who he is, in a sense, you know. He's not replaceable. If, if, he, if he were to die early, uh, the guys who, who sit next to him would, would feel that, you know. And this is why another custom in Benedictine communities is, is when a monk dies, his place at table, which is the same every day, you, you light a candle there for 30 days after his death. To remember, this is where, you know, uh, Brother Alquin sat. He was our brother, and we're praying for him to go to the next life. So uh, suddenly, because we know something about the master, uh, Benedict's teaching takes on new meaning and new richness and depth. So one of the things I, I plan to do in these discussions of the rule is to make uh, plentiful uh, references to what the master has to say. Uh, you can get the rule of the master if you're interested. It's, it's in paperback. It's uh, 10 or $12 or something. It, it's not the easiest read, but, but if you can sit with it and compare, uh, there's also um, uh, Luke Dysinger's translation of the rule of St. Benedict, he puts in bold the texts that Benedict borrows from the master and in plain print, Benedict's own words. So you can see very graphically and quickly how Benedict will like add one word to change the sense of something just a little bit or adjust it a little bit. So um, 
since uh, we just have about 15 minutes left, and I do want to give you a chance to ask questions, uh, let me tell you uh, two more things. The first is uh, one other idea about how to interpret the rule. And then the second thing will be some of the themes of the prologue, which will I will find a way to communicate with you online or some other way over the coming month. Uh, and then Father Brandon, I think it's going to give you a talk on Irenaeus next month, uh, uh, third century, the, the great uh, original sort of theologian of, of the Catholic Church. He's the first one to articulate apostolic succession and things like this. So, um, so the last two things I'm going to say for today. First of all, how to interpret the rule. Um, we usually in, in house here talk about avoiding two certain types of extremes that are temptations in the modern world in reading texts. So the first temptation I would call rule fundamentalism. This means trying to live the rule word for word as if it's still 547. Okay. Um, a couple of things about this. So monastic renewal usually comes about with an attempt to live more closely to the rule. Because often what happens is certain elements of it fall out of favor. Some of the things that St. Benedict pres prescribed in the rule have almost never actually been lived. So for instance, he very begrudgingly <laughs> uh, puts in a chapter on the prior, in chapter 65. He says, uh, basically, I hate the idea of priors. I don't like the idea because it divides the authority of the monastery between the abbot and the prior. However, if the brothers give good reasons, um, the abbot can select someone as his prior, but he can depose them too. But it can't be as, the community doesn't choose the prior, nor does the bishop choose the prior. The abbot has to choose the prior because the abbot has the authority. Anyway, Benedict's concern about priors, you know, I don't know of any communities ever in the history of Benedict, Benedict and monasticism that didn't either have a prior under the abbot or a sub-prior under the prior. I, I, don't, I don't know of any examples. So uh, whatever Benedict was worried about it must have been very particular to his experience and circumstances. And it turns out, generally speaking, uh, communities do better if there's somebody who... Because what usually happens is the abbot is the father, sort of the good cop. <laughs> Uh, who, who concerns himself with knowing the brothers personally, uh, meeting with them to talk about spiritual matters. The prior kind of runs the monastery, uh, the, the sort of day-to-day -day things, like who's going to wash dishes this week? The prior takes care of that so the abbot doesn't have to. You know? And that's how things generally run in our community. Um, right now, Father Brendan and Brother Joseph has just been made house manager. They make sure all the jobs are covered each week and that kind of stuff. And then Father Edward pays the bills, so I don't have to do that. <clears throat> uh, so we, we need to be attentive to the reality that the rule has never, ever been lived with 100% fidelity to the letter of the, of the rule. Uh, but St. Benedict himself gives us ample reason uh, to seek out the spirit of the rule through, through what he writes, you know. Uh, unfortunately, the spirit of the text has gotten kind of a bad rap uh, after Vatican II, where, where some people, under the idea of the spirit of Vatican II, have sort of abused the letter. 
Um, but the spirit of a text has always been the concern of Christians. And you, know, you go back to the church fathers and they talk about reading the scriptures. What does St. Paul say? The letter kills. It's the spirit that gives life. So St. Benedict himself warns us against this. He, when he, he gives this beautiful teaching on the liturgy, uh, he sets up the Psalms in an impeccable order for the week. You know, he, he lays out when to say the Psalms at what hours and so on. It, it's in such a good manner that we still follow his, his cycle today in our monastery. We do exactly the Psalms that St. Benedict says we're supposed to do it at each hour, each week. But he gets done with this and he says, uh, you know, if you can come up with a better order, you know, fine. Uh, just make sure you do all 150 Psalms every week. That's the only thing I ask you to do. That's, that, that is not negotiable. But the actual ordering of the Psalms, um, you know, I don't make any, he says, I don't have any pretensions in thinking I've had the last word on this. Which is, again, kind of interesting because um, both Benedictine, the Benedictine office and the Roman office until Vatican II followed St. Benedict's schema, basically. So, but St. Benedict himself says, uh, you know, the abbot, one of the reasons he wants the abbot to have lots of authority is that uh, no written rule can apply to every circumstance. So the abbot has to have a certain amount of freedom to say, yes, St. Benedict says that uh, we should all sleep in a dormitory, but in, in our cultural circumstances, it's better that we each have cells. You know? so, so the abbot can do that. St. Benedict gives him that leeway. So in our interpretation of the rule, we want to be alive to the spirit of why St. Benedict would legislate what he did so that especially for you as oblates, you can't follow the rule in its letter. So we, we need to have a, a, some way of understanding the spirit of the rule so that it applies to you. Okay, so we want to be careful about being sort of fundamentalists about the rule. However, and a, and a big uh, however, uh, we don't want to go to the opposite extreme and become relativists and say, well, you know, St. Benedict just suggests this. We don't really have to do it. Uh, St. Saint, Saint Benedict says uh, we, we shouldn't eat the, uh, the meat of four-footed beasts unless we're sick. But, you know, we all know that, that protein's really important and, uh, uh, you know, we'll all get sick if we don't uh, have some, some ground beef once in a while. And, it's, you know, it's interesting. St. Benedict doesn't actually legislate for a vegetarian monastery. It's just uh, pork and beef that you're not allowed to eat. Presumably poultry you can't because... Uh, Turkeys and chickens aren't four-footed, right? Uh, but in any case, it's very easy, and what's happened a lot, um, uh, again, mostly since Vatican II, but there have been times throughout history where there's, there's been a lot of laxity in Benedictine monasticism. Uh, there's this feeling like, for instance, uh, obedience infantilizes adult persons. Therefore, uh, we don't believe in obedience anymore. Uh, we, we need... Uh, to come up with some new rubric. Uh, and it's, it's very interesting to see how different monastic writers try to get around talking about obedience by using ideas like accountability or willingness or something like that. These are good efforts. I don't want to detract because these, uh, I'm, I'm referring to Columbus Stewart and Michael Casey, you know, two, two uh, uh, men whose, whose credentials are greater than mine. It's just to say that there's this fear that if we talk about obedience, that somehow we're going to uh, be uncomfortable. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I don't think that we have to be careful. I think obedience is, is 
to me it's another non-negotiable. How we understand it, of course, is, is one thing. But we can't get around it because, again, we, we have scriptural warrant for this. Uh, St. Paul talks about obedience with reference to this man. That he was obedient unto death, even unto the cross. Um, the Son of God was able to be obedient because he knew the Father loved him. And so whatever the Father would ask of him uh, had to be for his good and for the good of the rest of us. So even if it looked like the worst possible idea that one could come up with, uh, the Son of God was freely available to do the Father's will. Okay, And what St. Benedict and the monastic tradition see is that this is what we want to be. We want to be free to give ourselves entirely to God, no matter how bad things look. You know? That's hard. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's carrying our own cross. It's, it's being crucified with Christ. And, uh, but this is, there's no way around us in the gospel, you know? So we're not talking about something that's, that's uh, just for sort of hardcore people who, who uh, we're, not, we're not talking about masochism or something. We're talking about uh, the spiritual battle with sin and, and our own uh, vocation to battle against it using the tools bequeathed by Benedict and monasticism. And right, you know, you can't get away from obedience. If, if we do, if we try to, I think we're being rule relativists. We're trying to relativize. We're trying to sweeten the hard teachings of the gospel. Uh, so these are the two poles we want to guard ourselves against. How do we guard ourselves against that? Any ideas? I have my own idea of how we guard against that. We all have some experience of this in everyday life, don't we? I mean, you live your family life. There are rules, and then there are exceptions, and how do you negotiate between them, right? <laughs> you know, how do you avoid the chaos of, of everybody doing their own thing, and how do you avoid the stifling feeling like you have to walk on eggshells because you might break a rule? Like, how do you find, how do you navigate between those in your experience? So humility is a, an important virtue. But there would be always a year still I have to go to that side. Mm -hmm. to the other. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because I know that the if you would keep rule intact, mm -hmm. you would not have get any miracles for your organization. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's uh, this is uh, Teresa Davila. Yeah, yeah, she was uh, uh, very, very serious about the rules, but also very insistent that it's again it's not the letter of the law that, that saves so yeah she's a good example you know the story about some somebody dropped off uh, partridges uh, at the monastery where she was superior and I, I think it, it may have been a Friday and, and she ordered them to be cooked up and served and the sisters were not going to eat them and, and she said but if someone gives us partridges we have to eat them you know, we can't let them go bad so she dispensed the community from the fast. Uh, so that's, that's an example of that, you know. Uh, and, yeah.
that's a great example. Mm -hmm. Make sure there's enough food. Yeah, yeah. Salmon for dinner, the kids will Thank you. It was quite challenging. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Susan? Oh, actually. Yeah, please. So I, I think love sort of captures the, the, the breadth of what I would offer as, a, as an answer. For one thing, it's we do this together, and that's the really important thing. Uh, St. Benedict wants the abbot to consult the monks regularly and listen to them. Right? And he wants the monks, again, to be able to know the abbot well enough that they can give reasons that will be meaningful to him. So if we're going to make a change in the schedule, we want to be able to hear genuinely what other people's concerns are and not just cut them off right away because, well, that's not how we've ever done it, you know. So even the newest guys have to be listened to, right? Uh, according to St. Benedict in Chapter 3, uh, the youngest guys often have the best advice because they're not sort of trapped in the old traditions. Um, the, 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 so that would be the breadth of it, you know. Can we make these decisions in love together? out of mutual love. The, the more technical thing, which I'll emphasize over and over again in, in this discussion, are the virtues. So uh, we as Catholics, our morality, our, our moral theory, as it were, is not rule-based. Uh, most modern moral theories are. So if you study moral philosophy, Today, you either get a kind of consequentialist, well, things are good if they bring about good results, um, which what a good result is, of course, is, is very questionable sometimes. Or it's, well, you follow the rules. Like, you're, you're a good person if you follow the rules. Uh, this is the, neither of these are Catholic teachings. The Catholic teaching, uh, the technical term is uh, eudaemonism. We have been called to live a life of beatitude with God a life of happiness, joy, peace. The virtues are those habits of behavior that dispose us to live that kind of life. And this is an exercise of human freedom, uh, which love is as well, love being the, the greatest of the theological virtues. So we're looking for a life of virtue, and this the cultivation of faith, hope, and love, of courage, temperance, prudence, and justice. These are the, the seven theological and cardinal virtues, these are the things that make it possible to avoid just relying on going by the letter of the law or by just going by our personal desires and whims. Okay? So we, we learn to live excellent lives together uh, and, and support one another in this way. So St. Benedict, he'll say uh, in the prologue in chapter 7, chapter 7, you know, when you get to the top of the, the ladder of humility, the monk runs the way of commandments out of delight in virtue, right? So the, the commandments simply are the way I act. I don't follow the law. I, 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 I enjoy doing what God's will is, and I just know it because it's, it's who I am. You know, I don't have to. It's no longer something that opposes me because of my vices, you know. So um, we, should, we should wrap up. Are there any questions about anything before we wrap up? 
I will, I'll be in touch with you all this, this month. I do intend to do that. Um, the last couple of months have been a little bit tricky for me personally. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been working with uh, Brother Linus, getting him resettled in Germany, and then reallotting the jobs of the monastery. And uh, um, the, the, the trickiest part is the finances, because, you know, uh, Brother Linus and I are the only ones who have backgrounds in finance, so um, just getting the books in order, a lot of it falls to me at this point. So. Um, so I apologize that I haven't been in touch, and I, I hope that doesn't sound like too much of an excuse. But uh, uh, I'm very excited about the fact that we have all these candidates for uh, oblation. I think this this is a real sign from God that, that this needs to be a priority for us. So, any questions about what the plan is uh, for the next month or two or the year? Yes. Sure. Yeah, normally for the oblates, uh, the expectation is that it would be something uh, something shorter, like the Roman office. Uh, so, um, what what does maybe we could just go around the room and find out what brothers use? You know, there are great websites. Uh, actually, these days when I travel, I often do the the yeah, office online. So you 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 use an online version or like one an app? Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I have uh, powers of the Virgin and Divine Office. So I can go to any like any Divine Office online because I. You can, yeah. There are um, you know there are different versions of the Roman Office. You can get a one volume Christian Prayer book, or you can get the four volume book that has all the different uh, feast days and all that. Um, are, are there other editions that you are all using right now that you would suggest or recommend? Is every are, are you all using the Roman Office for the most part? Is that uh, thoughts? Yeah. I think that's easier uh, because it also aligns us with the uh, right, right, yeah. Because then the Jews cannot see that yeah. So, yeah, so the expectation is not that Oblates will do the whole 150 psalms in weeks. The Roman office does the psalms over four weeks, and, um, and, that, and it's, it's canonically legitimate for priests and religious to do that, whereas before the council was not. Uh, all priests also have to do the 150 psalms each week. Uh, we're not even, I don't know if we're actually canonically required. Most Benedictine men's monasteries I know of do full psalter. Um, uh, it's high consuming. <laughs> um, so, but, uh, so there, there's, um, I, I'll, I'll, when I contact the, the candidates, I'm going to indicate, you know, we, we talked last time, Charles brought up uh, that at St. Myron's they have sort of five obligations of oblates. I thought, I found that very helpful. So I can outline those and I can say, like, these are the of the office that I would recommend as, and, and show you where to find them online or, or bookstores. So. And there was an article of one oblate. I don't know whether Peter or I found it online, but he said from his experience, mostly we do more than our income. Yeah, yeah. So he said, for a person, that's kind of possible. 
that's the other thing is that it's um, oblation is, is it's not religious consecration, so it doesn't have the sorts of automatic obligations that, that I would have as a as a vowed religious. Uh, the oblates promise to do as their state in life permits, a life according to the spirituality of Saint Benedict, and just a big part of our spirituality is the office. It is the liturgy. So you know, daily mass if it's possible. Certainly, you know, Sunday Mass obviously is non-negotiable, but then the office is, it's such a big part of what we do. And so talking about being a community together, say, avoiding rural fundamentalism and rural relativism, is that we stay in contact with each other. You know, we encourage one another and say, well, I, I think you should try this, you know, uh, based on what we know of your circumstances. And uh, then, then you don't have to sort of fret about it. It's something that we're all doing together. Thank you.